Hey guys, welcome to the Underground Church Podcast. Uh, this is Abraham, and with me is my brother James. What's up, guys? And today, we're going to be discussing why the elite scientists of the world, many of them atheists, are beginning to abandon the theory of evolution by natural selection, a.k.a. Darwinism. So, everybody knows what evolution is. Um, you know, just to be very short, evolution, basically the theory of evolution says that um, over a large period of time, um, over accumulated mutations, new species of organisms have evolved. So, you know, a lot of these, you know, David Galernter, a lot of these scientists, one of the reasons why they are jumping off the boat of Darwinism is because the math simply does not add up. So let's get directly to the point and let's go into the actual nuts and bolts of microevolution, which is the mutation. Now, you know, you're probably very familiar with the mutation, um, but let me point out that mutations generally are going to be happening at the protein level. And proteins, of course, uh, consist of amino acids. And as it says, a modest-sized amino acid chain is going to be comprised of about 150 elements. So an easy way to visualize this is just think about a string. Think about a string, and that's the amino acid chain, and each element is a bead. So hmm. think about a, you know, a, a bead necklace with 150 elements. And for a mutation to happen, one particular element must change, right? So, okay, let's get into this. So uh, we have a chain of amino acids of 150 elements. And keep in mind that the average size of an amino acid is about 250 elements. So we're being very conservative here. Okay, hmm. so let's get into it. So, first off, let's get into how many mutations we can have in just 150 length amino acid. So, um, you know, David Galernter and other uh, mathematicians, scientists have done the math. And they have found that if you start with just 150 links and you're going with mutations, we're talking about, this is the number of different amino acids there can be, 20 to the 150th power. And I know you're wondering, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, that means 10 to the 195th power. And you're like, okay, Abraham, what do you mean by that? And let me tell you, that is many, many more times than the number of atoms in the entire universe. So we're talking about that many possibilities of different proteins that can mutate. Okay, but that's actually not the whole picture because they're, you know, proteins are not stable, right? So kind of like how when you cook an egg, right, um, where the protein in that egg, that albumin is going to turn white because it denatures, a huge number of proteins are actually not stable, right? So we're going to have to reduce that number a little bit in this 150 long chain. And Axe, Douglas Axe, so he did a series of you know, experiments to estimate how many 150 long chains are capable of stable folds, right? And he calculated this and he came in at 10 to the 74th power. And that's wow. not very far below 10 to the 80th power, which is the number of atoms in the universe. So if we're talking about what are the chances in getting a successful mutation, we're looking at chances of one in 10 to the 77th power. And, you know, we're talking a, a protein that is stable 
and that performs some sort of useful function. In essence, what that means is the odds are very much against Darwinian evolution happening because even just to get the protein, it's one in 10 to the 77th power. And that's not, that's not even mentioning the fact that protein mutations occur at the DNA level that's going to result in a mutation in a protein that actually works. So we're actually talking about a number more than one in 10 to the 77th power. But you know what? Let's give the Darwinian evolutionists, you know, a little bit of a fair fight, right? So, right. you know, let's be a little bit conservative here. Typically, um, the Darwinist is going to say, look, you know, we understand. We understand that the odds are astronomical. We understand. But given the amount of time, you know, given a long, given enough time, mutations can happen. Right. right. That's the most common argument, I think, that comes from hmm. anybody who is a staunch evolutionist or, you know, against intelligent design or creationism. That is oftentimes, it's like the crux of their positions, right, is that you just have right. to expand the timeline out. Oftentimes, I think they'll, they'll kind of accuse creationists of saying, well, you guys are putting everything on too small of a timescale. As long as you can just make that timescale larger, then eventually that rare chance, that astronomically rare chance can, can occur, right? That's absolutely right. And you know what? By saying that, they have thrown the ball back into the court of intelligent design. And, right. you know, this is where it gets fun, you guys. Let's throw that ball right back into their court. Let's do it. So, um, let's look at the numbers. This is from Vox Day, uh, who uh, did a debate with a very prominent biologist, J.F. Garapi. And to keep it short, let me give you the summary of this is that even being extremely conservative, okay, even being extremely conservative in the number of mutations it would take for a chimp to turn into a human being, it would be impossible. The math, the length of time it takes for even a chimp to turn into a human being. So let's look at the numbers. Really? Let's see what we're actually talking about here. So where did these numbers come from? Okay, so in 2009, geneticists studied the rate of mutation in bacteria. And this is Nature Magazine. This is a very prominent um, scientific publication where only, you know, the, the biggest of discoveries and research and, you know, this is the highest level of research here. Wow. And so we're looking at approximately 1,600 generations per fixed mutation. Uh, it approximately took, a lot of these evolutionists are saying, that it took 9 million years for the chimpanzee, human last common ancestor, to evolve into a human being, okay? Mm. And if we take the rate of mutation of bacteria, and if we apply that to the chimpanzee, over the period of 9 million years, this was their estimate. This was the estimate of the evolutionists, okay? And we're actually bringing it into the numbers that, nature, that the researchers at Nature Magazine found. And if we apply that, we only have a maximum of 125 mutations. Hmm. Now, guess what the most conservative of evolutionists, how many mutations they say it took to get from a chimpanzee to a human being? 15 million mutations, you guys. 15 million mutations, as opposed to the actual 125 mutations that could have occurred during this time. Wow. Okay. So we're talking it's a big difference. 
That, that is a pretty big difference. And so let me visualize that for you guys, okay? So they're saying that nine million years, you know, that is plausible. Nine million years, that's a long enough of a time for a chimpanzee to turn into a human being. Okay, let's get the calculator out here for a little bit. So given that it took nine million years um, and you're only getting 125 maximum mutations, right. okay? What that results in is 72,000 years it took uh, for a mutation to actually happen. Now, they're saying this is very conservative because most scientists, most evolutionists say that it took 30 million mutations for a chimp to become a human being. And hmm. J.F. Garapi is saying, no, it was, it was half that. It was 15 million. Okay, let's okay. take how many years it would take um, for even that to happen, for 15 million to happen. 72,000 times 15 million. Oh, make sure we have enough zeros. So we have 72,000 times 15 million. Okay, wow. so now we have a number that has gone beyond uh, the billions. If I remember correctly, we have 1.08 quadrillion years wow. to go from the chimpanzee to the human being. And keep in mind, keep in mind, you guys, 1.08 quadrillion is far beyond what they're estimating the Big Bang to have occurred, right? Far beyond the purported life of the Earth, far longer than the life of our solar system and our galaxy. Wow. Yeah, but it gets better, you guys. This number, this number of 15 million mutations actually originates from the assumption that chimpanzees and humans are 98 to 99% alike, okay? Hmm. In fact, uh, more and more geneticists are finding that the chimps are 98% um, identical to human beings. They're finding that that's false. And that's for many reasons. As this article, uh, it's an interview of Jeff Tompkins, who is a very prominent geneticist. They're finding that a lot of human contamination in the laboratory has been causing these numbers. And that, in fact, when you factor those errors out, the DNA similarities between chimps and human beings are closer to 81 to 86%. Hmm. And that's very, very significant, guys, because we're, we're going from a conservatively a 2% difference to conservatively a 14% difference. And what's 14 divided by six, James, or divided by two, James? Seven. So let's go back into our calculator where we have um, 1.08 quadrillion years. Here we go. Let's just Do multiply it. that by seven. Wow. And now we have 7.56 quadrillion years. Many, many more times than the purported age of the universe according to Big Bang. So these numbers are not just, you know, we're not talking, you know, given enough time, given just another million years, given another few billion years, we're talking orders and orders of magnitude beyond. All right. What's interesting, Abraham, is one of the reasons why this is not more widely known in not only the scientific community, but just with the public in general, right, is because of the culture of the scientific community. You know, when I was over there at UC Berkeley, I was visiting one of my best friends at UC Berkeley who now has a PhD in chemistry. And he was in his final years getting his PhD 
over there. And something I noticed from hanging out with him and hanging out with a few of his fellow students over there at the UC Berkeley Science Department is that, well, this is something that he told me in particular, Hmm. is that if you want to challenge an idea, a theory like evolution, you have to have an overwhelming amount of substantial evidence to even be considered. So the problem with that is that it's difficult for the initial phases of that challenge to even get any kind of recognition or to be taken seriously because they're just looked at as fringe or, oh, you must be siding with the religious community. So oftentimes the the conversations myself and my friend would get into, he would explain that to me because I would show him certain pieces of evidence that are either pro-intelligent design or they show that the theory of evolution does not have as sound of a backing with evidence, especially empirical evidence, because they are projecting this out to billions of years. And so even some of the carbon dating stuff, you have a different university sometimes coming to wildly different conclusions on timeframes of when they'll date something with carbon dating or, or similar forms of dating. And so I would show him certain specific things. And he would often say that you need to have an overwhelming amount in the scientific culture that we live in today for them to even consider it. So therefore, any of the first kind of independent thinking scientists that really stand up and say, I found something deep that clearly shows that the backing of evolution is now looking to be outdated. The arguments that back them are now looking to be outdated. And so, you know, he would say that all of those are not going to really even be considered unless there is some kind of an overwhelming thing. And so there's a lot of politics in the scientific community. You know, we can use one example here of flagellum, right? And so this is commonly known within the scientific community as one of the bases for intelligent design, right? And so, I mean, even if you type into Google, flagellum intelligent design debunked, right? The first few results, Michael Behe hasn't been refuted on the flagellum. Three flagellum updates amplify Behe's challenge. So this gentleman here, Michael Behe, uh, we'll take a look at him really quickly. Behe is an American biochemist. And I actually attended a speaking events where he visited the University of Central Florida, UCF, when I was living over there in Florida previously. And I heard, you know, everything that he had to say in that presentation. And one of the things that stood out to me was the peer pressure of the scientific community that he has had to face in even just like the past 20 years. And uh, he is a, a foremost expert on this particular compartmentalized field of science, because that's something that I often say is something I've noticed is that you have these experts, but they're compartmentalized in one area of science usually, unless they, you know, they might double major or something, but oftentimes they're not going to have a deep understanding of brother or sister fields of science. So like the chemists will often disagree with the biologists is what I found is, is kind of like a cultural talking point when I was visiting my friends over there at UC Berkeley in the chemistry department, right? But anyways, so Michael Behe here, if we can just see a quick, see like a quick introduction to the concept. 
what biologists, molecular biologists, cell biologists, microbiologists have been discovering is that at the level of individual cells, there are little tiny examples of nanotechnology, little tiny machines at work. The flagellar motor is the one that Behe made most famous. It's a rotary engine that uh, powers a whip-like tail, a protein tail that functions like a propeller, and it moves the bacterium through liquid, enabling the bacterium to essentially track down its food, its food supply. And this little machine includes a rotor, a stator, a drive shaft, a U-joint, bushings, bearings, and a whip-like tail that functions like a propeller. And the machine in some, in some bacterial systems turns at 100,000 RPMs in one direction and can reverse direction on a quarter of a turn and turn 100,000 RPM in the other direction. All right, so, wow. If you even see here, when you just type, type in Michael Behe, one of the things is uh, in the Wikipedia description, it says that he's an advocate of the pseudoscientific principle of intelligent design. Wow. So that tells you right there. I mean, just the fact that they're already just like, since it's intelligence design, it's pseudoscience, right? And so this is something that I know some of the smartest students that were like on the verge of getting their PhD, we're talking about, they had gone through the majority of the program over at UC Berkeley in the chemistry department. And you could tell from, from talking to these guys, especially one of them was my best friend and I've known him for the majority of my life. Right. But you could just tell that there is a culture that you kind of have to you have to accept because oftentimes the talking points that my friend would provide me was that, oh, come on. Like when I would provide a counter example, he would say, come on, don't you think we would all know that already by now? There are prominent scientists that came before us. You have to have an overwhelming amount of evidence that we all recognize. Well, the problem is you can't just get there overnight. And so until that happens, what they've done, and he's pretty much admitted this, he said, we have to accept that that is the theory that we're kind of going on. So even though science, you're supposed to approach it as unbiasedly as possible. So mm -hmm. with each new piece of information you look at, you're supposed to kind of, to the best of your abilities, step aside from your current biases or what you currently lean towards and say like majority of scientists they might lean towards evolution, but that's because they've been indoctrinated literally in the secular school system, right? And so they're learning from a biased point of view. And so it's difficult for them because a lot of scientists, they're just learning information from a textbook. That's their foundation. They're not training their minds to think independently. That's the problem. If you're going to discover something new, then you can't think the exact same way as every scientist that came before you, right? But that's the thing I noticed is that it's a very left brain, this textbook training that they receive is just training them to memorize knowledge and to trust that these scientists were prominent and respected enough that we can stand upon their shoulders and go off of their work. Absolutely. And now we're just supposed to branch off from that work. But it's very difficult for them to question an entire system and say, what if this entire conclusion right now is not even moving in the right direction, right? Because that takes a different kind of educational or, or mental training to be able to do that and stay logical and accurate to reality at the same time. Exactly. Right? Because oftentimes this is something that my friend would say is that you can be logical, but that doesn't mean that your logic is accurate to reality. And so that is an exercise in practicing logic is that you have to be applying it to the real 
world around you at a very detailed level, but while still keeping the big picture in view. And that's something that I noticed is that there's this argument between different fields of science, that some are more big picture fields and some are very much in the details, such as the chemists, right? And so they oftentimes have a little bit of a disconnect from neighboring fields where they might be too far into the weeds or they might be a little bit too big picture and not have an expertise on a lot of the details. Anyways, going back to Michael Behe here. So I attended this event where he was speaking at UCF over there in Florida. Mm -hmm. And something that I noticed was just more so his arguments that kind of, I don't want to use the word he convinced me, but the arguments that really got me to take him seriously was surrounded in kind of like the cultural bias and the politics of the mainstream science community. And because I have been close friends, he's one of my best friends with that particular chemist that graduated from UC Berkeley. I've known him the majority of my life ever since we were young, right? And we took interesting routes. He took the very standard educational, the mainstream educational route. But both of us have very similar levels of intelligence, right? Because we've talked about these kinds of things ever since we were like in eighth grade or ninth grade. And so anyways, um, it's just, I think he has more of that. He's able to provide more of the mainstream, what you learn from the textbooks and they branch out from that. Whereas I've taken the more, first I wanna train myself from a fundamental, being able to think independently outside of the box so it's kind of an interesting approach when, when myself and this friend talk. Maybe eventually we'll get him on the podcast, but I'll play a clip here. This is a German scientist that originally he was going to kind of uh, poke fun at intelligent design scientists. And the idea was that you have all these books on the left over here on this scale that are supposedly uh, these, you know, these new intelligent design scientists. And on the right is supposedly like the support for evolution, right? And he mm. said, we don't even need that much uh, information here to be able to debunk all of this. But when he was making this exhibit, a balance with books on it. And the plan was on one side of the balance, we would have all the books against evolution, books by creationists, intelligent design proponents. And on the other side of the balance, we would have one book, The Origin of Species, but the balance goes down on the side of the one book because this is the real heavy evidence. But the display didn't have quite the result Beckley intended. And I made one big mistake. I read the books on the lightweighted side, the apparent lightweighted side. And what I recognized to my surprise is that the arguments I found in those books were totally different from what I heard either from colleagues or when you watch YouTube videos uh, where the discussion is around intelligent design versus neo-Darwinian evolution. And I had the impression on one side that uh, those people are mistreated, their position is misrepresented, and on the other hand that uh, these arguments are not really receiving an appropriate response. Interesting. All right, so that kind of goes along with the things that I personally witnessed when I was over there at the UC Berkeley chemistry department, you know, hanging out with those guys when I was living there. And so anyways, to close this point on my side, um, Michael Behe here, I'm going to play a short clip of him talking. You know, I recommend checking out his books. I think he was a great speaker. And you could just tell from the event that I attended at UCF over there, I believe it was in late 2016 or 2017. 
But yeah, the issue that really stood out to me is not so much like this banter back and forth of like really intricate theories that only people who have graduated with a PhD are capable of understanding. That was not really what stood out to me. More so, what stood out to me was the politics and just the imbalance of the scientific community, where you would think naturally that in the scientific community, there would be at least a few different subsets of viewpoints or perspectives on theories like the theory of evolution. But really, there's not. Really, it's just like you're either with evolution or you're some kind of a fringe. You must be with those religious people. You must not have studied uh, deeply enough. There's obviously evidence to disprove that. And this guy, uh, what he often talked about was how he's an expert in this field and he's read the counter arguments, right? Mm. So he's read because he's been doing, I think he's been making this fight for around 20 years or more. And in that time, he's experienced politics back and forth with scientific boards. I mean, he's highly respected even so. I think he is a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. Just listening to him recount his story of how he had to stand up to this, this giant of peer pressure uh, from the scientific community simply because he was providing his deep personal research as an expert in this particular field, all of the counter arguments, he's read them and he's considered them, right? But these people do not understand this particular area of expertise as well as he does. That was kind of the main point that he kept making. He's like, they tried coming back at me with these counter arguments, but they don't understand. And also in these 20 years, he's discovered even more evidence that really supports this this intelligent design perspective, right? So I'll play just like a couple seconds here of him talking because he mentions Darwin. Tell us what happened in science in the last hundred years that leads you to write your first book, Darwin's Black Box, and that leads Stephen Meyer to write Signature in the Cell. What do we know that we didn't know when Darwin was hanging out? Uh, well, when Darwin first started, the, the cell was thought to be a piece of jelly. Uh, protoplasm. Mm -hmm. Some buddies of Darwin's uh, got some uh, mud from an exploring ship and looked at it under a microscope and thought they saw cells there and so therefore thought cells would bubble up. So anyways, I recommend his, uh, his books, um, even to check out some of his, his videos at other speaking events such as this one. But yeah, I mean, I think science in all its compartmentalized fields they're all complex, right? So the average person simply doesn't have the time to go to school and gain an expertise in each of these fields, or even a lot of times if they have a totally different career path, most people don't have time to study deeply enough in a science field. And so they just have to kind of trust the scientists that our mainstream education system is pushing out. Right? And so that's why hopefully we'll talk about this, we'll branch out in future podcasts, but that's why if you can understand the policies, the educational policies that are being pushed down from higher levels, that can give you a connected insight into why the culture is like that, why the peer pressure of the science community is mm. the way that it is. One of the things that I you know, wanted to say in the beginning was that, as James was saying, there's a lot of politics going on. There's a lot of politics going on in our schools, in the publications, in a lot of these scientific, quote unquote, you know, I, I have to do that because you guys got to take it with a grain of salt when they call themselves scientific. 
A few years back, uh, this is actually a pretty recent book um, on what's called the conflict thesis. And the conflict thesis basically is that, you know, religion and science are invariably at war with each other. And so some social scientists actually went out into different nations and they interviewed the elite scientists of all of these nations. We're talking the United States, France, the United Kingdom, we're talking India, we're talking Taiwan, we're talking a lot of these countries where the cutting edge science is going on. And they interviewed them and they asked them, hey, do you guys think that abstractly in a, in a philosophical sense, there, there is a conflict between science and religion? And they said, philosophically, no, but they also asked, are they propagating some sort of conflict between science and religion? And they said, yes, they felt a pressure. They felt a pressure that from the side of quote unquote science, that they had to propagate this conflict. And let me tell you, this conflict between Science and religion that is being toted in media and academia and all that kind of stuff is a false narrative. Um, Historically, it does not exist. The historians have completely refuted this. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of a scientist who is either an atheist or an agnostic. Now, why is it that when they receive results that might hint at intelligent design or that might seem like it goes against this theory of evolution? And if you really put yourself in the shoes of an atheist scientist, there is some kind of a fear of admitting that intelligent design is true. And the reason why is because that would then, the next step is for them to now take religion seriously. That's right. right? And a lot of them don't like, it comes more from a, honestly, they're supposed to be coming at it from a logical standpoint, but really if you boil it down, the root of it is actually an emotional desire Absolutely. They, they don't like that concept because it makes them feel like they lose control of their own lives because now they have to submit to some kind of a higher power. And now they have to look into religion, right? For example, the Bible, you want me to believe in that God? Come on, that's not God. You know, that's kind of the general deep-seated stance that these guys are coming from. They don't want, they don't want something like the Bible to be true. A lot of times, but that could also be because they don't understand the Bible in its proper context. And Christianity even is being misrepresented on a grand scale in the days that we live in right, by people who have not properly studied deeply enough into doctrine. All right. So I know in these first two podcasts, we got pretty deep into the details. It's, you know, it's more intellectual we're talking about topics like science, but there's no telling where this podcast could go. That's and right. I think things are going to get really exciting, and we have a lot of interesting topics, interesting information and perspectives to present. So stay tuned. This is an exciting time, you guys. Keep seeking that truth. You know, this guy, Galerter, he had the integrity, he had the courage enough to go forward and and actually look into these issues. And sure, the media might try to portray him in a certain way. The media might try to portray Michael Behe in a certain way. But all of us know, all of us who actually know the real story know that these are men of integrity. These are people of integrity that are pursuing the truth. So if you're in that position, don't let that discourage you guys. That's right. Real quick, guys, before we take off here, 
do us a favor and share this video, share this podcast with somebody. Mm. And it doesn't have to be in an overt way, even if you just mention us in conversation. You know, if you think that you learned a little bit of something, if you just find that it's an interesting perspective, it's different from some of the things that are that are out there these days. Go ahead and do that. Just share us, even if it's in a you know a more casual way with one or two of your friends. And we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for yep. tuning in.